From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth and the steady state economy. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brian Check, and our episode today is Exploring the European Degrowth Movement with Timothy Parikh. Astute listeners might be having a bit of deja vu here because we used the exact same introduction on the 11th of January. Tim has so much to offer on the topic of degrowth that we're having him on the show not once, not twice, but thrice at least in 2021. That's once a piece for each of the major sections of his recent PhD dissertation. As a reminder, Tim's 29 dissertation from Claremont Auvergne is titled The Political Economy of Degrowth. Right now he's in the middle of a one-year sabbatical transforming this important thesis into a book for widespread readership. Tim Parikh, welcome to The Steady Stater. Hello, Brian. Thank you for having me again. Tim, you know, at Cassie, we're big history buffs. We think that any sort of policy-relevant economics can hardly be understood without an understanding of the historical backdrop. So it was really refreshing to find your assessment of the four phases of degrowth, prehistory, birth, internationalization, and rebirth. Was there a particular incident that marks the birth of degrowth? I don't know if I would call it an incident. At first, I I started with the publication of a special issue in a French magazine in 2002 that was titled Sustainable and Convivial Degrowth. Uh, and at first, I thought this might have been a, a good starting point for the history of degrowth. But the more I was getting into studying the ideological landscape of that time, the more I was getting drawn back to the 60s, to the birth of the environmental movement in the 70s, to the discussions led by the Limits to Growth Report. So that's why I've added the prehistory of the term before the term decroissance. Uh, was born in France in 2002. The the ideas that are now associated with degrowth took a few decades uh, to form. Hmm. Well, is it safe to say that degrowth was originally all about a declining GDP, essentially, and then a degrowth ideology and political movement was built around that original concept? Yeah, the initially was not too focused on GDP. I think they were still using the, the, the more concrete language of uh, declining production and consumption. So here we were, I, I think when they were talking of a decline, they were really meaning like a smaller economy, not only in the way we measure it, so in terms of monetary value, but also physically in the number of cars we have, in the square meters of houses we build, in the kilometers of roads we have. So there was a, a conflation of, of these two, not only just shrinking GDP, but also make sure that the biophysical throughput is also shrinking. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, you know, I I have to make an announcement, Tim. We've adopted degrowth, albeit primarily the decline aspect, in our Cassie position on economic growth. The board just voted it in this week. It's not really a change in position, but rather an explicit clarification. So Clause 6 now of the therefore clauses will now be the long-run sustainability of a steady-state economy, 
requires its establishment at a size small enough or a period of degrowth to a small enough size to fit within its ecological capacity. Now, Tim, that clause is obviously entirely about the size of the economy, but the position taken as a whole, and especially now with the technical degrowth explicitly included, is largely favorable, I think, to political degrowth as well. So I'll send you the link and, and you can give us your thoughts. Listeners can also find the position at www.steadystate.org and uh, they can feel free to join our 15,000 plus signatories. And those, uh, those signatories include a lot of leaders in ecological economics, sustainability science, and the degrowth movement. That's now, fantastic to hear. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. And uh, now back to just a little bit more of the history of degrowth. It sounds like what Herman Daly is to the steady state economy, Serge Latouche is to degrowth. Can you tell us a little bit about Professor Latouche and the background that brought him into degrowth leadership? So Serge Latouche uh, has been trained in, in economics, has done a lot of field work in, in parts of, of Africa, and I guess what we would today describe as being a form of economic anthropology, looking at the functionings of the informal economy in Africa. And from this perspective, I think he witnessed the negative impact of imposing Western, the Western definition of development upon uh, very diverse uh, economies. So Serge Latouche, before even before caring about the environment, he did not arrive in the field of degrowth out of environmental consciousness, but rather from an anti-imperialist post-development stance, where he was basically criticizing the imposition of a universal definition of, of prosperity. That would be uh, GDP, more uh, material comfort in the form of market commodities, and, and basically growing uh, a capitalist economy. So Serge Latouche, from this um, radical critique of, let's say, uh, economic monoculture, so the, the, mm. the classical uh, reaction of the anthropologist being outraged at the economist because the economist cannot imagine that an economy can be uh, something else than either capitalism or just socialism, and that there are just many diverse forms of economies started to think about different ways of inventing the economy. I'm using the term because that the title of one of his book that he published in 2005, The Invention of the Economy, where he's uh, rediscussing economic history from this perspective of how diverse communities around the world have created different forms of economies. And now, you know, the economy is socially constructed and socially deconstructed at many different times in history. Hmm. Clearly, the degrowth movement has its deepest roots in France, but from an applied perspective, which country in Europe now has the most active degrowth presence? It's difficult to tell. Uh, in France, we've had a collapse of the degrowth movement in, in the last few years, so I would say definitely not France. My, my guess would go to either Italy or Spain or maybe increasingly Germany, even though um, some people use the word post-growth. Uh, or growth skepticism in, in Germany. So quantitatively, I don't know, but Germany 
Catalonia and Italy are, are definitely safe guess. In, in Italy, you even have two different uh, nationwide degrowth movement. It shows how diverse the concept of degrowth has been over the years. Well, that makes sense. Uh, going back to some theoretical stuff just for a moment, on page 263 of your dissertation, you wrote, Robain's uh, 2016 makes a case of limitarianism of financial resources. But the health of the biosphere cannot be measured in money and requires indicators of its own. That resonates with us, but also we have concluded that real money supplies and macroeconomic flows, such as GDP, are great indicators of environmental impact. The inverse of GDP then would be an indicator of ecological integrity. And we call this analysis the trophic theory of money because it's based on the concept of trophic levels in ecology. Now, is there a faction at least in the degrowth movement that would be on board with us on this? There's been a controversy for very long of people misunderstanding degrowth as an advocacy for recessions. And this is why people, have, at least in Europe, have constantly uh, protected themselves by shying away from pointing to GDP as any as being a relevant indicator of a degrowth transition. Even though I agree with you, uh, when uh, if if by degrowth we mean shrinking of the realm of market commodities and of the volume of monetary transactions, one of the consequences of this will be a diminution of GDP. And uh, that's my double agreement with you. If uh, GDP correlate with environmental pressures, and we know it does, then that shrinking is also going in the way to improve uh, planetary health. Then I guess it's a question of strategy, of, of perhaps taking the risk of, of tapping into an almost cultural fear of recessions by, you know, keep using the indicator of GDP or just uh, doing it differently. Mm. Well, you know, a certain metaphor comes to mind. If you're a doctor and you have a, a patient that has a problem with weight and you have them uh, weigh themselves on the scale, you know, part of that body is, is good, solid muscle and part of that body is, is flab. So, <laughs> it, but it all comes down to the same figure, which does tell the doctor something, right? I mean, is there no... Uh, uh, is there, there no utility of GDP simply as a metric like that of pure size with no distinction among good or bad of goods and services? Uh, it's, it's a good measure of size. And okay. if we treat it as such without giving it too much importance, then I'm fine with this. Uh, if we accept the fact that to conduct to manage any form of complex social ecological transformation will need a dashboard of indicators, hmm. uh, then it's completely fine. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, dashboard sounds great. Uh, and you know, at some point, we're going to probably ask you to take us, a, you know, you sit in the cockpit and give us a, a tour of this dashboard. Uh, we have all kinds of episodes in mind for you. <laughs> but now, you know, with the, uh, the uh, rejection of economization, uh, degrowthers must loathe the term natural capital, too. But I'm a little worried now. Do they automatically loathe the phrase steady state economy just because of the econ syllables? 
Mm. I have actually been reclaiming uh, the, the term economy in general. You know, Latouche, Serge Latouche's uh, phrase was to sortir de l'économie, to escape the economy, to leave the economy. So for, for him, uh, the, the idea of degrowth was not to reform or change the economy, but leave it altogether. And I have to say that what inspired my approach to call degrowth a, a form of de-economization. But I don't see this as, um, I don't, I'm not as extreme as to say that every form of economic organization is evil, because I think this would be an absurd statement. I think it's, it's rather a matter of right-sizing, and I like the way you, you phrased it in, in your, uh, your, your Cassie uh, agreement, is the fact that today we have an economy that has colonized social and ecological spheres where it's becoming counterproductive to what it's supposed to be. An economy is a collective organization to fulfill our needs. If it doesn't do this, what's the point of having one? So the, for me, the, the economic aspect of degrowth has to do with right-sizing, so de-economizing certain sectors where economic incentives should not be that important. For example, education, healthcare, the provision of food or housing, those sectors that are perhaps overly commodified, overly capitalist, overly econom economized, overly economistic, we could, we could say. But at the end of the day, I still like uh, to talk of an economy that is efficient in the, in the fundamental social and ecological understanding of the term, meaning an economy that economizes resources, right? So we want an economy that reaches the scale where it can be efficient in fulfilling needs with the smallest requirement of time, of energy, and of materials. Okay, Tim, you know, we might be getting into some thornier questions now, but before we go any further, we need to take a short non-commercial break with Rick Tibbetts. If you're hearing my voice, then you're probably somebody who is already fully aware of the dire situation our future is in. Survival on our finite planet will require an urgent transformation of the ways we organize, produce, and consume resources. How do we achieve that goal? Find out at the 7th International Degrowth Conference on July 5th, 2021. The event will include such esteemed speakers as our host, Brian Check, today's guest, Timothy Parikh, and other leaders for degrowth toward a steady-state economy. For more information about this event, go to isecoeco.org. Again, that is isecoeco.org. Now, back to the show. Tim, it sounds like the course you're helping to chart for degrowthers will, could kind of take them off the economic map. Degrowth as emancipation, as you call it. Now, you, uh, some, of your, uh, some of the discussion from before the break indicates that maybe you don't want to take them too far off the map, but uh, are you concerned that by moving off that map, you, you leave it even more thoroughly monopolized by neoclassical economics? Um, this is why I don't, I don't want to leave the map. Okay. Uh, right now, the way I'm writing the book in France, and I'm openly announcing myself as an economist and degrowth as a strategy to improve the economy, to redesign the economy so that it's more sustainable, so that it's more just and just more efficient in doing what it's designed to do, that is 
feel, feel satisfying people's need. So I think here we need to recognize that degrowth, of course, as interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary uh, sources. I've, I've talked about the work of anthropologists, uh, and there are many others in, in, in the social sciences, and of course, uh, people in, in mathematics and, and biology and, and physics that have contributed to the debate. But now, I, I think that the wealth of ideas that have been developed in ecological economics, in feminist economics, in institutional economics, and many other heterodox schools of thought could be mobilized for the discussion we're having in degrowth, in rethinking how to organize an economy that can prosper without growth. Mm -hmm. Well, along those lines, you wrote on page 246, Reducing the scale of the economy means that certain goods and services cease to be commodities. For example, public transport is made accessible, fare-free. I couldn't help thinking, though, that even if public transport is free, it still occurs, and with the same ecological footprint, all else equal. If we escape from the monetarily measured and managed economy, how do we ensure that the size of the unmeasured economy is sustainable. So here's the way I see it. When we commodify something, specific thing, humanity, social relation became a form of quantified capital being measured by money. In doing so, we're opening the door for a growthist logic. So we can think of selling more of that transport. We can think of, of growing income in the sector of transport. So it, it's let's say it's easier to think about it in a growth-based capitalist mode of thinking. But if that things remain decommodified, it makes it easier to focus on the concrete aspect of that service. So we're thinking of mobility, we're thinking of, of fulfilling a satiable need. And that's, for me, the, the key aspect of comparing discussions about concrete need with their chores satiable, which follow the logic of sufficiency, to be able to be happy concerning my mobility. I just need to have enough to move around. I need one bike. I need to have access to train, trains and cycling lanes, all those things. And when I got them, then I'm happy. I can satisfy my need. But if we translate this into abstract goals of private firms trying to sell mobility services that are trying to maximize their profits and uh, consumers that are just trying to maximize their income so as to pay for better mobility services, we enter the logic of growth. So you can see here, I'm making a bit of an assumption that perhaps if we decommodify certain spheres of the economy, we'll be more likely politically in the way we organize them to accept some threshold of sufficiency. Mm -hmm. I like that answer. It, it makes total sense and uh, it, it's compelling. And I think what you did is you kind of uh, showed the, uh, mm, the uselessness of the phrase all else equal or caterus paribus, I guess, as an economist might say, because surely all things would not be equal if you did take uh, things like public transport out of the so-called free market. All right, Tim, uh, see if you can help me solve this conundrum now, or at least that's how I view it. You know, yeah, we want to lessen the amount of production, production and consumption of goods and services in order to protect people and planet. One way to lessen production is to be less productive. On the other hand, 
Productivity is pretty much synonymous with efficiency, and in so many ways it would seem foolish to give up the levels of efficiency we've already invested in. So to me, the proper response would be to simply take those efficiency gains and use them for more leisure, family time, spirituality, and democracy. But I think you've come to the conclusion that under some circumstances at least, we might actually want to become less productive. Can you give us an example? Yeah, I think we need to understand that productivity, we need to be concrete about what kind of productivity we're talking about. Let's say you're growing food in your field, so let, let's talk agriculture. And let's say all of a sudden you discover, uh, you, you start using a tractor. So you become more productive, right? Let's say concerning your use of the time. So in one hour, you can produce more. But are you more productive overall? Or have you just substituted one form of capital for another? So let's say now you can produce very fast in one hour. So you reduce your more productive time-wise. But you're less productive in terms of your use of energy and materials. Because now you need a tractor and you need the petrol that comes into it. Mm-hmm. And if we realize that in that economy, that gains of productivity that are obtained through the additional use of fossil fuel and uh, mechanized uh, machines are just uh, not possible. Perhaps we want to reduce the productivity of, of this activity to, uh, less, to lessen the environmental impact. That would be one reason to lower productivity gains. And of course, that is not something that is desirable because uh, I, I hold that the primary goal of an economy is to economize resources, and one of the most important resources of all is our time. So I would not want to live in an economy where we need to spend uh, eight hours a day just plowing the field just to feed myself. Now, uh, in Chapter 7, you write about some of the controversies surrounding degrowth. Of course, a lot of these things we've discussed are controversial, but you really get to you know some of the uh, the more focused controversies, and one of them... I guess is the role of markets in degrowth. Personally, I find it, I have to say frustrating that steady staters are sometimes portrayed as capitalist free market economists simply because we would leave hammers and loaves of bread in the marketplace and not trucked into households by a Soviet gas plan. Tim, would you, would you happen to agree with Herman Daly that rival and excludable goods, at least, are best left to market allocation? I, I think there's been a lot of uh, criticism of the work of uh, Herman Daly on market recently, and I'm also very surprised to see this, because we have the equivalent in France where uh, Serge Latouche, I think in his, in his, when you read his early work, you see how he marvels at the markets that he discovers in Africa. Mm. You know, he, he described them in long paragraphs talking about, you know, colorful markets with a lot of sociological interactions, markets that are not only a marketplace, but a social place, a place for democracy, a place for all type of things. So markets that are sociologically rich. So in, in my thesis, I think I would... I would agree with you that we should not abolish markets in general, but it's just a matter of making sure that they are framed by non-economic rules of conduct. And for me, the way I specify this in the thesis is by saying that markets should be anchored in both time and space. 
So the good thing about the market is that it's a very effective institution to allocate goods and services rapidly, following very simple price signals. So it does that very well. The risk is, of course, that we start to apply the lens of market dynamics to other things that are not markets. So the solution to this is to make sure that we have nice and neat boundaries between when we should behave on a market and where we're outside of a market. So think of your uh, village veggie market, you know, happening, I don't know, once a week on the Saturday morning. You arrive there, you have several sellers, you know, goods, and you play the game of the market, and that's great. At the end of the day, you have your courgettes and all of this. And uh, at the end of the market, the market ends. So it doesn't matter whether you're a buyer or a seller of vegetables, you actually re-become a citizen of that village, and when you discuss and have fun and talk politics, it doesn't matter what has happened on this market. The market, mm-hmm. the only goal was just to allocate a few veggies on that specific moment. My worry is that today, certain markets are not anchored in time and space. It's not only on Saturday from eight to noon, it's all the time 24 seven. Mm-hmm. And so we are taking the habit of behaving as if we were in the market when we were discussing politics. Excellent. Yeah, you know, Tim, thank you so much for spending some time with us today, and and I hope you are enjoying that beautiful French springtime. Meanwhile, we'll look forward to our third episode with you in a few months. Great. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward. Well, folks, that about wraps her up. We've been talking with Dr. Timothy Parik, one of the top degrowth scholars in the world. He's helping chart the course for a degrowth revolution beyond merely declining GDP. His vision includes our emancipation from our economic obsession and a sustainable, just, convivial degrowth society as our destination. Sounds a lot better than what we have now, doesn't it? Stay tuned for our next episode with Dr. Parikh as we continue exploring the frontiers of degrowth. I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.